From the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business. Welcome to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers. Leaders are the heartbeat of any organization. Let Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler show you what it takes to become a top 10% performer in your organization. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. Greenberg and Dr. Nadler. Welcome to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers. I'm Dr. Relly Nadler, and we have my co-host, Dr. Kathy Greenberg, on the phone. We'll bring her in just a moment. And between Kathy and I, we have helped thousands of leaders and executives perform in the top 10%. And today we have got a very unique show. It's, we're going to talk about social cognitive neuroscience, so a mouthful. But our guest, Dr. Kevin Oxner, we're going to have him explain it and get more details about what, that's, uh, what that field is about and uh, any of the current research. So let me tell you about uh, Dr. Oxner. He uh, received his bachelor's degree in psychology from University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, uh, master's degree and Ph.D. in psychology from Harvard. He also received postdoctoral training in social psychology at Harvard and uh, functional neural imaging at Stanford University. Kevin is one of the leaders of this new field called social cognitive neuroscience. As a matter of fact, sometimes people have called him one of the founders, which is generating a lot of interest in, in new findings that have previously been in that black box of the brain. He was recently interviewed by the Wall Street Journal about managing the fear that is current in today's financial marketplace, and he'll share maybe a couple of those key things about how do you manage those emotions. He currently is the director of social cognitive neuroscience and assistant professor of psychology, both at uh, Columbia University. Kevin's research interests include the psychological and neural processes involved in emotion, pain, self-regulation, self-perception, and person perception. So we also have some questions we're going to delve into that. We all have uh, an abundance of emotion and pain and everything else. And all of his work employs a social cognitive neuroscience approach that seeks to integrate the theories and methods of social psychology on the one hand and cognitive neuroscience on the other. And between Kathy and I, we always want to bring you the best in current leadership topics, interviews with proven leaders, and provide evidence-based best practices to help you develop more leaders in your organization. And Kathy, welcome to the call. Thanks, Relly. It's a it's an honor and a privilege uh, to have Kevin with us today on the program. We met at the Neuroscience Summit um, back in the fall, and uh, we're just delighted. I understand Kevin is a new father, and uh, we're going to be talking about lots of social cognitive neuroscience um, during our conversation. So we'll get to that in a minute, but I just want to make sure that uh, we bring to light for all of our listeners an understanding of why we do these shows and what they'll learn from each and every program. And, of course, Rally, you and I know that leaders are the heartbeat of any organization. But most leaders will underestimate just how much influence they have over others, and thus they and their teams, well, they will underperform. But doing just a few things differently can really make improvements in your performance and in your organization's performance. And what we hope to share in every one of our programs with you is how to develop more leaders in your organization, what happy companies know about performance, emotional intelligence and positive psychology strategies that will make you better, one of Relly's sweet spots. And, of course, in today's show, we're going to talk about brain 
and neuroscience contributions to top performance. Of course, in other shows, we talk about generation and gender differences, work-life balance, strategies for managing yourself and your boss, and certainly something about self-management tools to be your best. So, Relly, maybe um, before we um, continue, we can have uh, Kevin say hello. Thanks very much for having me. Oh, great. We're just making sure you're there with us. And, um, Relly, if you would just maybe give our listeners a little bit of the data sure. and the science behind leadership hmm. development, then you and I, well, you and I can then have a kind of an equal playing ground with those who are on the air with us. Great. <clears throat> well, leadership development news, we talk about leaders. And why do we talk about leaders? A lot of the research has pointed that leaders have 50 to 70% influence over the climate of their team. <clears throat> and the reason is emotions are contagious, and Kevin may tell us more what's going on in the brain with that, but emotions are contagious, and we like to say that the leader is the emotional thermostat for the team. So if the leader is calm, cool, collected, <clears throat> most likely so is their team. If the leader is stressed, upset, terse, irritated, most likely so is their team. So our focus really is to help you, the leaders, and your organization. And <clears throat> we also know that Someone being in the top 10%, that's what we call someone being a star performer. They perform in the top 10%. One of the key factors is usually emotional intelligence when compared to how smart they are and then technical expertise. So a lot of the emotional regulation uh, that Kevin can talk about, you know, really relates to this in helping a leader be in the top 10%. Why top 10%? Leaders in the top 10% produce twice as much revenue to the organization as managers in the 11th through the 89th percentile. So for your listeners, it really means how do you get your B solid 85% player to be an A player? That's where hopefully you take some of these tips. Both Kathy and I are, are certified coaches. We work in a lot of different organizations. We all know that training helps in an organization, and you get a productivity bump about 22%. But if you added training and then follow-up ongoing coaching, it can help the organization and the individuals uh, get better productivity by about 88%. And these small things, micro-initiatives, create macro impacts. By bringing coaching networks into your organization, a lot of times and you can do this in one day, get that set up. And then studies have shown that happiness, uh, one of Kathy's sweet spots, is tied to profit by more than 93%. And if you want more information about Kathy, her website is www.h2cleadership.com for her happiness books, tools, speaking keynotes, leadership, and coaching services. If you want more information about me, Dr. Rowley Nadler, my website is www.truenorthleadership for some free emotional intelligence tools and assessments, but also there's information on books, keynotes, leadership, and coaching boot camps. So with all that, uh, let me introduce Dr. Kevin Oxner. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you. And we're glad to have you. Let me just say a few things that I didn't say in the first intro. <clears throat> um, some of the things that you are currently teaching um, these days in your classes, social cognitive neuroscience and current topics in cognitive neuroscience. And they usually focus on the functional MRI methodology and other, uh, other areas, uh, as well as you lecture uh, on experimental psychological methods and the study of emotions and social cognition. We will focus on some of the brain research and how to uh, automatic and control processes that interact with producing emotion and emotion regulation, self-knowledge, feelings of social exclusion, attribution of other individuals, placebo effects, and automatic behavior and how we can use this information in leadership development. So, Kevin, welcome to the call. Thanks so much. 
Kevin, in uh, all of our programs, we'd like to start um, with our guests helping our audience learn a little bit more about them by answering a very simple question, and that is to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in the field of neuroscience. And if you could perhaps in your answer help our audience understand a little bit more about your perspective on neuroscience, that would be great. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I think uh, my interest in neuroscience uh, and the brain in particular dates way back to when I was a little boy, actually, where I was always interested in how it was that the brain could give rise to the experiences that we had on a daily basis. And as I got older, I realized that the kinds of experiences I really wanted to understand most and had been spending all of my time thinking about were the social and emotional aspects of our daily lives, the classic questions about why people do what they do, why do we have the feelings that we have, how is it that people can understand the nature of those feelings and how those feelings can lead them to act in ways that sometimes are helpful and sometimes are detrimental. And then when I went on to receive graduate training in psychology and neuroscience, the goal became to try and understand how we could use current cutting-edge tools and technologies to help illuminate both what was going on in the mind of a person when they're having an emotion or trying to control it or trying to understand someone else's emotion, and at the same time to understand what's going on in the brain that's making that happen. And the current technique that we use most often is called uh, functional neuroimaging and in particular uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging, which allows us to see, uh, you could imagine it as uh, telling us which parts of your brain are, are really most active when you're having a particular kind of thought or feeling. And our, our job now is just to design uh, as best we can experiments that uh, allow us to figure out how that happens. Well, this is uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, I know for, for me, Kevin, and for many of our audience, like we said earlier, the brain has always been the black box, and it sounds like as a child you were always trying to shed light on that, that black box. And then before we get into what is social uh, cognitive neuroscience and some of the research that you've done, um, one of the questions we usually ask folks is who, who have been some of your key influencers that maybe uh, whether it's uh, social psychology or psychology or in, in leadership, you know, people that have had a major influence on you? That's a great question. Um, I get asked this question every now and then. Some of the people who have influenced me are uh, folks certainly within psychology. Um, and one of the things I actually like to tell students that are in my laboratory or that I teach in classes is that your peers are actually some of the most important uh, teachers for you. Um, there's a fellow named Matt Lieberman. Uh, I know you had him on your program last year. He's one of the most important influences, I think, that I've had, uh, where he and I were, uh, I think, sort of working together as a two-person team, trying to help forge connections between neuroscience and social psychology, the study of social behavior, um, just as this new interdisciplinary sort of subfield of social cognitive neuroscience took off. Um, and it might be cliched to say this, but I have to say my own parents had a big impact on me as well. Uh, I think they suffered my uh, early desire to be a psychologist in the family when I was trying to understand why everybody did what they did and asked lots of questions. And some of them, they probably didn't enjoy coming from a 12-year-old. 
but uh, I think they had a huge impact on my development uh, of interest in psychology um, and uh, just as a person as well. That's great, Kevin. I, you just, I just flashed on this uh, scene. I'm a psychologist also, and I remember driving in the car and hearing my sister sing sing these songs, and I went through all these gyrations about this imaginary audience that she thought she's singing to, and I remember when I think about being a psychologist, it was really you know some of those early learnings of trying to understand what was going on, and I'm sure that probably wasn't at all, but I had this whole scenario created in my head about her. Yeah, you know, Early on, I think a lot of us as kids and as we develop into adolescence, we become acutely aware of the fact that we live in a social world where how we appear to others um, is as important as how we appear to ourselves. And we have to start trying to understand uh, how we're seen in someone else's eyes. And I feel like I'm lucky enough to have uh, a job where I get paid for thinking about exactly how it is that we do that. It's funny, as you guys are talking about this, you know, we we think that a lot of this is just other people pushing us or sharing with us ideas that they have, but I think it's when we actually spark ourselves in connection with what someone else is doing that I guess what you're calling, um, Kevin, this social cognitive neuroscience actually begins to help us make decisions. Is that fairly accurate? Um, sure. Uh, I mean, social cognitive neuroscience is, a, is just a, it's a discipline that tries to understand how we do that. Like, what is it about the social relationships that we have uh, with other people and even with ourselves that enables us to function uh, in an adaptive, uh, uh, productive way in our daily lives? So, Kevin, we're going to go to a quick uh, break, but then we'll come back and have you talk more about social cognitive neuroscience and then also a little bit more about how the, this functional MRI has aided your research. Sure. So this is Leadership Development News, and we'll be right back. The Bottom Line in Business, Voice America Business. Most leaders underestimate their influence and power over others and thus underperform. Dr. Relly Nadler and Leaders Playbook help leaders point the way by providing the strategic place to get to the top in a simple paint-by-the-numbers process. Seasoned and emerging leaders will have answers to these questions. What are the steps to move up and become a star in your organization? How do you develop your people to be the next level leaders in the organization? What are your triggers that are holding you back and how do you manage them? How do you maximize your power and influence so you and your team perform better. What do you do to ensure your communication is received accurately? How do you delegate effectively? How do you develop strong relationships across the organization? Emotional intelligence training, coaching, books, and tools by Dr. Nadler are available at his website, www.truenorthleadership.com or 805-683-1066. Let Kathy Greenberg teach you and your team how to harness the power of happiness to generate even greater success and satisfaction at work. Did you know by applying coaching and the new science of happiness, you can improve your return on people anywhere from 50 to 350%. At H2C, we believe in both a return on people, that's ROP, as much as return on investment, or ROI. 
Dr. Greenberg, co-author of What Happy Companies Know and What Happy Women Know, is the leading global expert on coaching combined with the new science of happiness and originator of the Happiness Equals Profits business formula. Kathy's company, H2C, Happy Companies, Healthy People, provides practical training for individuals and entire companies to maximize their potential in as little as one day. Kathy herself is available for one-to-one executive coaching, group training, and as an electrifying conference speaker. Catch her at the Governor's Conference for Women Nationally and as spokesperson for Cancer Treatment Centers of America throughout 2009 for distinctive learning, practical solutions, and proven results. To learn more about adding Kathy and Happy Company's healthy people to your team, visit Kathy at h2cleadership.com. That's h2cleadership.com. Homeowners, real estate investors, bankers, listen up and tune in to Finance, Foreclosures, and Foresight, the show that breaks it all down and gives it to you straight. Are you at risk of foreclosure? Interested in buying a foreclosed property? Mark Bull has the answers to the questions you might forget to ask. Finance, Foreclosures, and Foresight broadcast live on the Voice America Business Channel, Monday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific. You can't afford not to tune in. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. You're listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers with your hosts, Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We know you have leadership questions that you're just dying to ask, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Leadership Development News. We're talking with uh, Kevin Oxner, and he's helping us understand a little bit more about social cognitive neuroscience. So, um, Kevin, maybe you want to pick up where we went to the break. Sure. Uh, We were just starting to talk about what social cognitive neuroscience is. Um, I just wanted to say one word about that. The interest in how the brain uh, gives rise to our uh, emotions and enables us to have various kinds of social interactions is not new. It's been around since the time I think people first realized that the brain is what gives rise to our behavior. But what is really new is our ability to study it uh, in healthy uh, adult individuals or even children. Uh, Prior to the last few years, the only way we could study the brain basis of social and emotional behavior was through the unhappy accidents of nature. Someone crashes their bike or a car or has an unfortunate accident on, say, a football field, and they end up damaging some part of their brain uh, and, a criti- say, critical parts of their brain that influence their social relationships, influences their ability to understand themselves and have normal emotional reactions. And interestingly enough, the parts of the brain that are involved in emotion and social behavior often aren't uh, cleanly or specifically damaged by uh, those kinds of injuries. But now that we have a tool like uh, functional brain imaging, we can look, uh, sort of peek inside the brain of an individual that um, is totally neurologically normal and healthy and see what parts of their brain are uh, active, if you will, while they're having various kinds of thoughts and feelings. And that really jump-started the emergence of social cognitive neuroscience as a field that you can think of as the child of uh, two parent disciplines, uh, one being 
uh, classic social psychology, which, which has been concerned for over 40 years with uh, people's attitudes, uh, how they perceive each other, pretty much any aspect of individual or group behavior on the one hand. And then the other parent is what's called cognitive neuroscience, which was uh, the study of the brain basis of um, anything you'd think of as cognitive, sort of uh, thinking, reasoning, memory, problem solving, but importantly, leaving emotion out of the mix. Because early on, people doing neuroscience study of human behavior uh, were trying to keep it simple and leave emotion and social behavior out of the mix uh, before they uh, built a simple foundation of trying to understand uh, brain functions for sort of what they thought, I think, at the time were sort of simpler and easier to understand uh, building blocks. But now uh, we have the, the foundation that's been laid by the two parent disciplines. We have a new technology, functional imaging that's come into the mix. And we have uh, sort of the right climate for a new discipline like social cognitive neuroscience to emerge. And it's, it's really been uh, present or sort of in existence for only about the last, I'd say, eight to ten years maximum. So can you also tell us now that you have that as a foundation, how this new functional MRI works so that we understand how that takes your research on this subject of social cognitive neuroscience even further? Sure. So um, functional uh, magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI for short, uh, you can think of as involving uh, a big radio antenna and a big magnet. Uh, basically what you're doing is you're asking somebody to lay down inside uh, a large box uh, that looks like a giant plastic donut. And uh, they are slid on a little table into the center of that donut, and it has a very, very strong magnetic field. Um, so strong a magnetic field that's it's probably as powerful as any one of those electromagnets that could pick up a car, but because we're not magnetic or ferromagnetic, as it's called, it doesn't really affect us in any adverse way to go inside the field. But what it does do, interestingly enough, is it, it uh, sort of changes the orientation of um, certain molecules in your bloodstream that are carrying oxygen, the red blood cells, as they're called. And uh, you change their orientation uh, in this magnetic field, and when uh, somebody's having a thought or a feeling, like let's say I ask you guys, what shape is a German shepherd dog's ears? What might you say? Like a triangle? Yeah. And when you answered that question, did you have a, a, a mental image, a visual image in your mind's eye of what the ears looked like? Yes. So when you did that, it turns out that the parts of the back of your brain at the base of your skull that are involved in vision would have become a bit more active. And when that part of your brain becomes more active, it needs food to support uh, its activity. And oxygen and blood sugar are the two main ingredients that uh, the brain cells eat. And so what we have is increased blood flow to the part of your brain that is uh, creating that mental image for you. And the magnetic resonance uh, imaging scanner picks up signals from those parts of the brain using what essentially is just a, uh, a radio antenna. You don't need to know the specific uh, physics of how that works exactly, but suffice to say what we're picking up on are the parts of your brain that get more blood flow. And the parts of your brain that are getting more blood flow are the ones that are doing the thinking or are responsible for the feelings you're having at a given moment in time. 
And with that simple logic, uh, what we can do are experiments where we ask people to recollect emotional events from their personal lives or show people uh, emotionally charged video clips or photographs that elicit strong feelings in them. And then we ask people to uh, relive those events or to live those events that we're showing them in the moment in different ways. And what we want to see is how parts of the brain that trigger the emotional response to begin with change uh, as a function of how we're trying to ask people to think about the meaning or, as we say, cognitively regulate their emotional response to uh, the memories or the pictures or videos that we're showing them. And what we can do is pick up activity in different parts of the brain, the parts of the brain that are getting different blood flow. And we see these interactions between uh, parts of the brain that trigger the emotion to begin with and those that are responsible for uh, regulating that emotion after the fact. So, Kevin, I have a, a couple questions about this. So, um, <clears throat> first, like, how, how strong are these reactions, and is it, is it specified in kind of one area and then just weaker in other areas? Is it, or is it kind of a, a lot of areas would kind of light up with the oxygen and, and blood sugar? And, so we, and is it also just is one, can one question activate that? Sure, absolutely. I mean, it turns out that even what we think of as the simplest everyday kinds of things we do, if I ask you um, what shape are a dog's ears, for example, it turns out there are a number of different brain regions that are really important for what seems like a very simple ability. Uh, parts of the brain that are important for language uh, to understand the question. Parts of the brain that are important for vision as you form a mental image of the dog's ears. And uh, you can see whole networks of uh, parts of the brain become active when you're answering even simple questions like that. And the critical thing is that it's different parts of the brain depending on what question you've been asked mm -hmm. uh, or what it is that you're doing. And so there are some parts of the brain that are particularly important for emotion and other parts of the brain that are specialized for doing other sorts of things like language or vision or, uh, say, programming a movement. And what's, what we're doing is trying to design our experiments to really isolate the very specific individual parts of the brain that are uh, important for generating an emotion, on the one hand, and those parts of the brain that are critically important for regulating the emotion on the other. Now, and so it does sound like there would be one dominant part, but then other parts that, that are associated with it. Is that right? Versus just only one single area. Yeah, it's definitely not single areas. Uh, the, the metaphor I like to use for how the brain works is an orchestra. Mm. So if you imagine that in an orchestra you have a number of different instruments, each of which can play different notes. You might have the brass section, you know, the wind instruments, the string instruments, the drums, and so on. When the orchestra plays different pieces of music, different instruments uh, will start playing different notes. And you can think of the brain as playing different kinds of music when you're engaging in different kinds of behavior. So emotion is one kind of music. Uh, remembering something is another kind of music. Uh, trying to reach and grab a cup on a table is, yet again, a third kind of music. And depending on the music you're playing, different instruments are involved and they're playing different kinds of notes. Our job is to give the brain different kinds of music to play and then to figure out which instruments are the ones that are creating that music. 
And you can think of uh, a brain imaging scanner as sort of the microphone that you lower down over the orchestra and you listen in and you try to figure out, okay, which instruments are the ones that are playing right now and why are they playing for this kind of music rather than another kind of music. That's great. That's uh, fascinating. And, and so um, let's zero in. I know some of you work a lot around uh, cognitive regulation and, or emotional regulation. And one of the things we've been able to uh, distinguish is the amygdala and, you know, being the emotional part of the brain. But maybe you can talk more about that role and the, the function of the amygdala uh, that especially apply to leaders, you know, any individual, but, you know, that, that emotional part of the brain. Sure. So um, the amygdala, uh, and that word amygdala means almond in Greek, uh, and the Greeks named a lot of the parts of the brain just based on their visual appearance when you would dissect parts of the brain. And they thought it was a little cluster of cells that looked about the size and shape of an almond. And it's buried underneath the surface of your brain, and it's evolutionarily quite old. So we actually share, uh, in many ways, the amygdala with, um, lower mammals, uh, virtually every mammal has one. You can also see uh, what looks like a primitive amygdala even in reptiles. And the amygdala seems to be critically important for learning what things out there in the world could cause us harm. So, excuse me, and it has sort of pr- like special access to our body's physiology, uh, to change our respiration, to change our heart rate, to change our blood pressure, uh, even to change our skin temperature, whether we're sweating. Um, And it has uh, special access to behavior so that it can short-circuit, in some ways, our higher-order reasoning and problem-solving functions if we think that there's something out there that could be a threat. So it's the kind of, uh, this brain system you could think of as constantly surveilling the environment to see if there's something out there that could be potentially threatening. And if it is, it alerts us to it, draws our attention towards it, and stores it in memory so that the next time we encounter it, we can quickly recognize that this is a potential threat. Or, in some cases, it's a potential good thing for us as well. Um, You can think of some people, uh, actually Daniel Goleman, the science writer famously described the amygdala as sort of hijacking a person when you have a fear response. And while I think that's a useful metaphor, I think it's a little bit overblown, to be honest, because uh, to a certain extent, yes, fear can hijack us um, and take over our behavior in a way that uh, we probably evolved to have happen. And Kevin, I'm going to ask you to hold that thought because we're going to come right back after this break. This is Leadership Development News, and we're speaking with Kevin Oxner, so come right back. The bottom line in business, Voice America Business. Most leaders underestimate their influence and power over others and thus underperform. Dr. Relly Nadler and Leaders Playbook help leaders point the way by providing the strategic place to get to the top in a simple paint-by-the-numbers process. Seasoned and emerging leaders will have answers to these questions. What are the steps to move up and become a star in your organization? How do you develop your people to be the next level leaders in the organization? What are your triggers that are holding you back and how do you manage them? How do you maximize your power and influence? 
influence so you and your team perform better. What do you do to ensure your communication is received accurately? How do you delegate effectively? How do you develop strong relationships across the organization? Emotional intelligence training, coaching, books, and tools by Dr. Nadler are available at his website, www.truenorthleadership.com or 805-683-1066. Let Kathy Greenberg teach you and your team how to harness the power of happiness to generate even greater success and satisfaction at work. Did you know by applying coaching and the new science of happiness, you can improve your return on people anywhere from 50 to 350%. At H2C, we believe in both a return on people, that's ROP, as much as return on investment, or ROI. Dr. Greenberg, co-author of What Happy Companies Know and What Happy Women Know, is the leading global expert on coaching combined with the new science of happiness and originator of the happiness equals profits business formula. Kathy's company, H2C, Happy Companies, Healthy People, provides practical training for individuals and entire companies to maximize their potential in as little as one day. Kathy herself is available for one-to-one executive coaching, group training, and as an electrifying conference speaker. Catch her at the Governor's Conference for Women Nationally and as spokesperson for Cancer Treatment Centers of America throughout 2009 for distinctive learning, practical solutions, and proven results. To learn more about adding Kathy and Happy Company's healthy people to your team, visit Kathy at h2cleadership.com. That's h2cleadership.com. Adding fractions is nothing. For real? Look, these are denominators. You multiply this one so that it's the same as that, then you add them up. Man, that's easy. Charles Bennett dreamed of returning to the old neighborhood as a teacher. But without money for college, only half of his dream came true. He's back in the old neighborhood. Well, enough math. i got to deliver these sandwiches. Please support the United Negro College Fund. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. A message from the UNCF and the Ad Council. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. You're listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers with your hosts, Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We know you have leadership questions that you're just dying to ask, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Leadership Development News. We're talking with uh, Dr. Kevin Oxner. And we've been talking about the amygdala. And during a break, Kevin, we were saying, you know, what are some ways that that the, the amygdala hijack or that emotional reaction may show up in the workplace that, you know, Kathy and I see all the time. It's, you know, people getting hijacked by an email or or something doesn't go their way. But maybe you can speak about, you know, how does the amygdala show up in daily life and especially work life for us? Sure. Well, uh, Kathy was making an interesting point during the break that when we're children, before we're verbal, we have all kinds of uh, experiences and especially emotional reactions that we haven't learned how to put into words. And then as we get older, um, we may be more intellectually developed, but we don't necessarily have the ability to put into words those experiences that we would had before we'd learned to talk. And 
my thought there is that um, as we develop and get older, we develop intellectual capacities as adults, but we don't necessarily develop emotional capacities as adults. And in many cases, you have people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s that are still emotional children. They might at best be emotional adolescents. And one of the reasons for this is that uh, a lot of times our emotional responses don't come uh, with explanations. We'll have an experience, we'll have an emotional response, and we think that that emotional response is just a readout of the way the world is. Uh, I get an email from somebody at work, and it feels insensitive. Uh, It feels like it's insulting what they're asking me to do, or it's demeaning my intelligence or my capacity, whatever it might be. And that makes me feel frustrated, enraged. I might not even understand the nature of the emotional reaction. It becomes consuming. It uh, takes up a lot of mental resources. It keeps me from working uh, on anything in a productive way for the rest of the day. I end up ruminating about it when I get home. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it even uh, causes me to stew over it for a number of days after that. One of the most important things, uh, and this is something that often happens in a clinical psychology context, is for people to understand uh, the chain of events that leads you to have an emotional response to begin with, and then how to regulate it. And perhaps the first and most important thing to understand is uh, that when you're having a strong reaction like that, that what is causing it is your interpretation of the information that you got, and that's causing an emotional response. And what you have to learn how to do is to understand what the triggers are for having that emotional response. You have to pay attention uh, to enough instances where you have a particular kind of reaction to understand what is it that's making me feel this way? What is it about an email message that I got? What is it about the way that one of my coworkers or superiors spoke to me that's making me feel a particular way? And a lot of times that involves trying to unpack past experiences, a personal history you have, or you might have had a family member or a sibling who spoke to you in a certain kind of way. You have particular kinds of experiences that have laid down patterns of interpretation for you that lead you to have particular kinds of emotions. Once you've learned to identify the fact that, hey, I'm feeling anger here, or hey, I'm feeling frustrated here, or I'm feeling disappointed, whatever that emotion might be, and then you've started to learn what triggers that, You can then move on to the next step, which is trying to understand what kind of strategies might be effective in helping you work with that emotional response in an adaptive way. And it's that stage of the game that the research in my laboratory focuses. Uh, We try to understand when people are trying to use different strategies to regulate their emotion, what can be effective. But I just have to say the critical, like in, in many ways, the research we do uh, doesn't even touch the first and most critical step, which is understanding that you're having an emotional reaction and trying to understand what's triggering or causing it. Because it's that failure to understand that your emotional response is an interpretation, um, and it's an interpretation that has a history, probably, that trips a lot of people up. Right. Well, that goes way back, I'm sure you know, from what Epictetus was a Greek philosopher. People are not disturbed by things, but the view they take of things. Or something yes, like that. Ab- exactly. That's exactly the point. You know, there's any number of uh, philosophies, um, uh, some of which are spiritual around the world, that try to make exactly this point. The Buddhists, for example, talk about lifting the veil of Maya from your eyes, which is all about trying to help people understand that it's their interpretation of the world. Mm. You know, my favorite quote on this comes from uh, Marcus Aurelius, who was a Roman emperor who wrote a book called Meditations, which really were his reflections on his uh, life experience. 
both as a, a warrior and as a leader. And he wrote that if you're uh, disturbed or you feel pain as the result of anything in the world, it's not due to the intrinsic nature of that thing itself. It's because of your interpretation of it. And you have the power to change that interpretation at any moment. Now, we shouldn't take that to mean that if somebody stabs you, uh, quite literally, in the side, that doesn't hurt. But we have, but what I think we should take it to mean is that whether there's any kind of wound that's literal or, or figurative, emotional, uh, that we have the power to work with that reaction uh, and interpret that reaction in different ways, some of which may be more or less uh, adaptive or useful for us at any given moment in time. Well, let me ask you something then, Kevin, given that we know now that Marcus Aurelius was a great coach. <laughs> yes. So how, how, how does some of your research um, help us understand how we can control emotion and, and conflict and what steps can someone use who's just an average listener here in the business world um, to control their emotions and, and to perhaps be more effective when this happens? So uh, let me give two answers to that. Um, the first is to just uh, give a, a sense of the different kinds of strategies somebody might use, and then I want to zoom in on one of them and tell you about how we understand how that works in the brain and what uh, information that might give to people in a work context to help them use that strategy effectively. So the di- there are four kinds of things you might do to regulate your emotion. The first is to uh, change your situation. So if there's a, a coworker who's uh, bothering you in some way, uh, you might try to change either when and how you interact with that person or how you behave towards that person in interaction with them. That's really kind of, uh, I think of this uh, as the out-of-sight, out-of-mind uh, regulation strategy that sometimes uh, is effective when you're trying to do something like uh, be on a diet and not eat the cake. You just try not to have the cake around or not to put yourself in situations where that cake exists. But unfortunately, in work contexts, a lot of times we can't just simply escape from or avoid uh, interacting with uh, someone who might be problematic for us, or we can't avoid that work problem that is absolutely necessary to solve. In which case, we might try the second strategy, which is changing how we're attending to it, changing what aspect of a person or a problem we're focusing on. We call that attention deployment. So you could try to focus on the positive things rather than the negative things, for example. The third thing you might do uh, is try to cognitively change your interpretation of the meaning. And that's what we were just talking about with respect to Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus. Uh, And that's the kind of strategy I'm going to zoom in on in just one second. But I'll mention the fourth and last strategy, which is just changing simply your uh, expressive behavior old adages and aphorisms like never let them see you sweat or keep a stiff upper lip are meant to describe this kind of regulatory strategy. And while it's effective in the short term, say in a strategic uh, setting where you don't want to let somebody know exactly uh, how excited you might be about something or how upset you might be, that strategy, it turns out, has all kinds of pernicious physiological consequences. It can end up boosting uh, your blood pressure and your heart rate in the long term, if that's the only way you're trying to regulate your emotion, by keeping it in, not letting anybody see what's really going on with you, it has uh, potential damage for your heart. Bad strategy if you used alone. The strategy that turns out to be most useful in every context, you can deploy it anywhere, is this cognitive tr- change strategy. And we use the term reappraisal, which is a term experimental psychologists have used for a number of years to describe it. And 
reappraisal uh, implies that you reinterpret or reflect differently on something that just happened. So in experiments that we do, for example, we might ask people to recollect a time when they felt humiliated or disappointed or saddened by some type of uh, interpersonal interaction they might have had. And they'll recollect that event in one of two ways. In one way, they focus on their deepest feelings about the event, uh, and this intensifies an emotional reaction and is meant to simulate the kind of rumination we have about emotionally charged experiences that we can't quite understand or come to grips with. In another condition, we ask people to be analytic about or to accept and allow the fact that they had this emotional response. They're able to get some emotional distance from the event and gain insight into it, promoting a reappraisal of the situation in a way that helps them understand why they felt the way they did and what that means. And in those two kinds of cases, we see strikingly different patterns of uh, emotional response and brain activity. Uh, when they're trying to, uh, when they're focusing on their deepest feelings, you see activity in parts of the brain that trigger emotional responses and uh, support rumination on and just a kind of negative self-focus on an event. But when we ask people to uh, be analytic about their experience, try to understand why they felt the way they did and gain insight into it, you see activity in parts of the brain that are involved in generating this kind of reappraisal, parts of your frontal lobe, and they seem to diminish activity in the parts of the brain that are involved in triggering the emotional response. Now, importantly, we see this kind of interaction between parts of your frontal lobe that support reinterpretations and parts of the brain like the amygdala or other parts of the brain that are triggering emotional responses. We see that any time people are, are thinking about the meaning of an emotional event. You can add uh, insult to injury by uh, focusing on what was really unpleasant about something that happened, and you can jack up activity in the amygdala. Or you can try to look on the bright side and focus on uh, a positive spin on an event, and that will diminish amygdala activity and leave you with more mental resources left over uh, to solve a task at hand. Kevin, so, one of the things that you talk about is stepping outside yourself to mm -hmm. help control emotions. Can yes. you talk a little bit about that? So what we mean by stepping outside oneself is trying to get a bigger picture perspective on what's happening, to escape from being in the immediate present moment and responding in an emotional mode to having a more reflective, meta perspective on what's going on. You can do that by quite literally imagining yourself seeing the world through someone else's eyes, maybe even through the perspective of a video camera that would be watching what's happening to you. Or you can do it metaphorically by trying to imagine how someone else would view the event, someone perhaps uh, more objective who has a, doesn't have the same personal investment in a situation that you do. Okay, hey, Kevin, we're going to go to a, uh, a break in a second, and then we're going to be able to come, come right back with like a couple questions I want to ask you about the meta perspective. Okay. The bottom line in business. Voice America Business. 
Most leaders underestimate their influence and power over others and thus underperform. Dr. Relly Nadler and Leaders Playbook help leaders point the way by providing the strategic place to get to the top in a simple paint-by-the-numbers process. Seasoned and emerging leaders will have answers to these questions. What are the steps to move up and become a star in your organization? How do you develop your people to be the next level leaders in the organization? What are your triggers that are holding you back and how do you manage them? How do you maximize your power and influence so you and your team perform better? What do you do to ensure your communication is received accurately? How do you delegate effectively? How do you develop strong relationships across the organization? Emotional intelligence training, coaching, books, and tools by Dr. Nadler are available at his website, www.truenorthleadership.com or 805-683-1066. Let Kathy Greenberg teach you and your team how to harness the power of happiness to generate even greater success and satisfaction at work. Did you know by applying coaching and the new science of happiness, you can improve your return on people anywhere from 50 to 350%. At H2C, we believe in both a return on people, that's ROP, as much as return on investment, or ROI. Dr. Greenberg, co-author of What Happy Companies Know and What Happy Women Know, is the leading global expert on coaching combined with the new science of happiness and originator of the happiness equals profits business formula. Kathy's company, H2C, Happy Companies, Healthy People, provides practical training for individuals and entire companies to maximize their potential in as little as one day. Kathy herself is available for one-to-one executive coaching, group training, and as an electrifying conference speaker. Catch her at the Governor's Conference for Women Nationally and as spokesperson for Cancer Treatment Centers of America throughout 2009 for distinctive learning, practical solutions, and proven results. To learn more about adding Kathy and Happy Company's healthy people to your team, visit Kathy at h2cleadership.com. That's h2cleadership.com. Dad, let's sing that bedtime song. Rockabye baby by Newton's treetop. His first law of motion makes sure you won't stop. The same rules of physics apply to a ball. While gravity is a force that makes things fall. By the sixth grade, many girls lose interest in math and science. But it's never too early to set your daughter's future in motion. For some simple ideas, go to girlsgotech.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Girl Scouts of USA and Ad Council. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. You're listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers with your hosts, Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We know you have leadership questions that you're just dying to ask, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Leadership Development News. We're talking with Dr. Kevin Oxner about um, social cognitive neuroscience. And before the break, you were talking about just what goes on in the brain by changing this meta perspective. And I'm just curious, so what, how does that show up in the brain? Because I imagine the emotional piece, like you said, is the amygdala. What, when you change the perspective, what happens? 
So when you're trying to change your perspective on something, you're relying very heavily on a part of your brain called the frontal lobe, which lies behind your forehead. Uh, just as an aside, I'll mention that the different lobes of your brain are named for the bones of the skull under which they lie, and your forehead is uh, substantially the frontal bone. Um, and there are parts of your frontal bone, or sorry, your frontal lobe, that are really important for, uh, in general, reasoning and problem solving. But some in particular that are quite important for um, enabling you uh, to do this kind of perspective taking, to simulate what it would be like to see the world through another person's eyes or to have a different mind, if you will, when you're thinking about an event. These parts of the brain are really uh, most heavily, densely located on the, the medial or middle surface of your frontal lobe. Um, and they have strong connections with parts of your brain that are involved in triggering emotional responses. And it's not that as soon as you try to take a, a different perspective on things that emotions get shut off. The critical thing is the nature of that perspective. And that's probably the most important message, I think, from some of our research, is that it's, it's not just that you might think in... Uh, um, it's not just that it's thinking and emotion are not antagonistic, I think is the message I like to get across. They can be synergistic or antagonistic depending on the nature of the thinking that you're engaging in. So if you imagine, uh, so some perspectives or interpretations of the meaning of an event make you feel worse, but some make you feel better. And depending on which kind of thoughts or perspectives you have, you might uh, make the amygdala respond even more strongly than it was um, and in some cases, you can you can switch it off in an effective way. So just changing that shift, and I know um, we talked about uh, Matt Lieberman, who you've done some work with, that idea that's, that sometimes naming what's going on, labeling the feeling, or, or just shifting away from it brings about some, some more of that prefrontal cortex, like you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. So in Matt Lieberman's work, what he's showing is that your perception of uh, a potential threat out in the world does trigger the amygdala. But if you think in linguistic terms about it, it seems to sort of neutralize the perception that a threat is there. And what seems, uh, what seems to be the active ingredient there is you're giving yourself the knowledge that, hey, it's just a picture of something that's threatening. It's not the actual threat itself. And that's what we often use language for, is to describe something in, uh, it's to give ourselves the knowledge that, you know, that isn't really a scary thing, it's just a description or a representation of a scary thing. And I think that's, that's the critical thing that Matt's looking at in those experiments. Well, so one of the other things that you talked about was being able to control the cues that you have, and maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Sure, that's hearkening back to the four kinds of strategies I mentioned in response to an earlier question, that uh, controlling your cues refers to the idea that um, if there's something that is going to be problematic for you, a particular person, say, on a, a team that is a, has, a, has an interaction style that's particularly aversive, maybe they crack a particular kind of joke, maybe they... It's as simple as them having a particularly high-pitched voice that's particularly piercing for you. Um, whatever it might be, trying to stay away from that person or avoid as much of the interaction with that person as possible is perhaps the simplest and most basic way of trying to regulate your emotion. The idea is just don't expose yourself to the things that are going to create an emotional reaction you don't want to have. Well, 
This is good, Kevin. I was thinking, Kathy, just as we're looking at the, what we want to ask Kevin, uh, one of the things that, Kathy, and I use a lot is these 360-degree um, feedback, and it really gets into some of the things that I know you, you talk about in, in research is around self-perception. And, and so I'm just curious, where does that reside in the brain, and, and can you change self-perception? So that's an interesting question. So your ability to perceive yourself accurately is, on the one hand, very critical, and on the other hand, incredibly tough to do. One of the nice things about 360-degree uh, feedback is that it provides us an opportunity to correct the views we might have of ourselves with actual information about how other people see us. And the, the interesting thing is in everyday life, we typically don't get that information. We're left to make assumptions about what impact our behavior has had on other people or, or how we might be coming across. You can change uh, views that people have of themselves. Um, you can change behavior as a result of the self-views. Um, you know, research in terms of how that happens in the brain interestingly shows a connection between self-perception and emotion regulation. So some of the brain systems that are involved in uh, reflecting on yourself and trying to update a view of yourself are the exact same reasons that are involved when you're trying to regulate your emotion by changing your perspective. So the parts of the medial prefrontal cortex I mentioned earlier that you might bring online when you're uh, trying to be more of an objective uh, observer of your own emotions are the same kinds of regions that come online when you're trying to be more of a, uh, an observer of yourself and trying to see yourself through someone else's eyes. If I'm trying to understand why it is that you give me the feedback that you gave me, and I'm trying to simulate what it's like to be you, having the view that you do of me, it's the same brain regions as are involved when I'm trying to regulate my emotion. Which region is that? Um, so it's called the medial prefrontal cortex, and medial means middle. Um, so if you imagine your, uh, your brain has two hemispheres, sort of like the two halves of a walnut. You crack a walnut in half, and you look on the surface of the walnut that's revealed, and you crack it in half. That sort of middle surface, there are middle surfaces of your brain up in the front of the frontal lobe. That medial prefrontal cortex, those are the parts of the brain that seem to be most critical for this. You know, one striking thing about medial prefrontal cortex is that as you move towards the front of the brain, right directly behind your forehead, those parts of the brain seem to be most um, unusually rich and differentiated in humans relative to all other primate species. And not surprisingly, those are the parts of the brain that are the ones involved in taking this kind of self-perspective. Seeing yourself through another person's eyes, seeing yourself from another point of view. Like that capacity for self-reflection seems to be, it certainly is one of the things that evolutionary psychologists think differentiates us from all other species on the planet. You know, we were talking during the break about the fact that the frontal lobe enables us to escape from the eternal present. To have, uh, if you imagine your dog, you can throw a stick and your dog will go and fetch that stick a thousand times in a row and every time they'll be as gleeful as they were the last. But a person who's asked to do that kind of thing if they're asked to do a menial task and a job a thousand times in a row, they'll be able to remember the fact that they've done this a thousand times and to reflect on what it's meant for them doing it the 998th, the 999th, the 1,000th time. And if the only perspective they have on that is the boredom and the dull, thudding repetition of it and not a higher-level perspective that says, it's important that I do this task with high fidelity and high accuracy every time because it's important for the overall organization that I do that, and I'm the person best suited to do that, if they can't take that perspective, they might end up being just uh, bored with it. 
But that meta perspective is absolutely critical. Okay, uh, that's great. As far as trying to get to a little more information about this, um, Kathy, you have another question you want to ask? You know, I, as as I'm looking at where we're going and and how our audience can apply some of this information, I'm pretty sure that many leaders feel that that they and their people, you know, can't change the way they are, and they understand some of the things that you've been talking about. But um, is there is there one kind of simple thing that you can ask someone to do? Someone who's who's going to be you know changing something that's hardwiring um, that they can understand very simply that they they can do very readily. What what one thing can they do? Uh, you mean in uh, the course of their everyday lives? Exactly. Or? Sure. Um, I think the simplest thing they can try and do is to reappraise as much as they can when they're having a a negative reaction to something that uh, is really uh, causing them uh, or presenting a roadblock in their ability to progress. Try to see something from an alternative point of view. Try to look on the bright side in a way that uh, makes sense and is adaptive. And what that ends up doing, uh, and work in my lab and others has shown, is that really switches off brain structures like the amygdala. Uh, It does that in the short term. It can give you some mental space to uh, try and frame the situation more adaptively. The question we really have is, in the long run, how long does that last? You can turn it off in the moment. How long does it last? Those are the kind of questions we're asking in research right now. But if I had to bet, I'd say you're able to change long-term the wiring of the brain so that you're less likely to have uh, that bad emotional response in the future. Well, thank you so much. And I know that all of these very, very complex issues um, have been simplified for this program, but I know it's going to make a big difference to our listeners. And um, just one last thing, how can they get in touch with you? So uh, the best way to get in touch with me is by email, and my email address can be found on my laboratory website uh, located on the Columbia University Department of Psychology. The simplest thing to do really is just to Google my name, and the first thing that comes up is the website for my laboratory and you'll find everything you need to know about the work that we do there, including uh, my email address and how to contact me. Well, Kevin, this has been superb, and I know we're just scratching the the surface here of the black box, but I I think you're doing great work, and and I know our listeners are going to grab onto some of these tips that you came up with. So we want to thank you very much, and this has been Leadership Development News, and thank you for listening. You've been listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers with your hosts, Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler. We sincerely hope that you're leaving us today with some great ideas and inspiration from today's top leaders. Join us again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Business Channel.